And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there were no more room. There was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We can't have a service go totally right, right? <laughs> we are continuing our ser- series on the way, looking at the healing ministry of Jesus in Capernaum, in particular this story. But, but I want to start with another story. When I was two years old, my parents had my sister, uh, Bree, and uh, after she was about four months old, she got some kind of a virus or something, got, got very, very sick, and ended up going into the hospital. And uh, while they were in there, they took x-rays of her lungs, they were checking a number of things, but while they were doing the x-ray of the lungs, they noticed that her spine was abnormal, that several, um, there, a number of her spinal uh, uh, vertebrae were not completely the same. They were sort of abnormal, uh, which wouldn't necessarily be a big concern, except there was one piece of bone uh, that was next to the spine that wasn't attached to anything. Just, it was just sort of free floating in there, which becomes very dangerous as she grows because there's a chance that that could uh, scoot over and uh, it's not going to grow because it's not attached. But it's, there's a chance it can go over and hit the spinal column, which it was very, very close to. Uh, and so they decided they needed to go in and have surgery to fix that. Now, surgery on a spine of a little baby, okay, is really fine surgery. Um, they were in Children's Hospital in Columbus, uh, so they were good at that. But still, to have that kind of surgery at uh, only a few months old uh, posed a lot of risk. And so my parents... Uh, again, I was two. I don't really remember this. Okay, but my parents are, uh, were praying and had the church praying and had the presbytery praying and everybody they knew in the family was praying. And um, because my sister was sick, they couldn't do the surgery immediately. She ended up being in the hospital a few more days, 
went home to recover. So it was another month or a little bit longer until they could come back and do the surgery. Um, because she was growing as a baby, though, they wanted to do some more tests before they redid this, before they did the surgery because it's been a whole month. So they wanted to make sure where this was and what they were coming. So they had her come in the day before uh, to, do, uh, to, to do tests, to do blood tests, to do another x-ray and all of this stuff to look at her spine. And about 10 o'clock at night, she's supposed to have surgery early, early the next morning. They came to my mom and they said, well, we can't explain it, but that little piece of bone is now attached. It is not free-floating anymore. They said, we, we have no explanation as to why this happened. This shouldn't have happened. But very clearly, a month ago, it was separate, and now it is together. And these doctors were sort of baffled by it, except for one doctor who was a Christian and said, well, we know what happened, right? Um, Today, we are talking about miracles, and that is not always an easy topic for us to deal with. Uh, We are fascinated by them, but may have some suspicion about them. And of course, we've all probably had situations in our life when we've prayed for miracles and haven't gotten them. Maybe God heals more than we realize. Maybe there are more of these moments of invasion where God violates the laws of nature and... uh, and does something in our midst, but, but it, it's interesting for us to think about. And actually, as we're going to look at, miracles do more in the gospel than just heal the infirmity. And, and they actually follow certain sort of patterns or expectations in the story. So, so let's get into it. Let's first journey with Jesus as he goes from his temptation in the wilderness... Uh, up to the north to the Galilee. And Israel is not that hard to figure out the geography because on one side there's the Mediterranean Sea and on the other side there's also water. There's the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan River which runs from there straight down to what's called the Dead Sea. And what happens is as the water goes it becomes so drained of any nutrients that it gets to the Dead Sea and nothing can grow because there's really nothing to, to help it grow in the water. So after Jesus is uh, baptized and goes through his temptation, he goes to Galilee, to Nazareth. And Nazareth was his hometown. Nazareth was where he was from. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem. But they went there for the birth and stayed there for a little while. And then they fled to Egypt. And then when he comes back, he's from Nazareth. Now, he spends some time in Nazareth. But Nazareth is a difficult place for him because he grew up there. Okay? I have certain friends that can't picture me as a pastor. You know what I mean? Because they've been around me when I made way too many jokes about bodily functions when I was in high school, and they can't imagine me in a collar today. They just can't, you know. And so Jesus comes back, and I don't think he made those kind of jokes, but he goes back, and everybody says, well, this, this this is Joseph's son. We know Jesus, okay? He's nothing special. And he has a lot of trouble in Nazareth. In fact, later on, they have such little faith, he can't even do miracles there. Now, I don't theologically know what to do with that, uh, that we could have, the place could have so little faith, Jesus can't do miracles there. But that's what happens in Nazareth. So he goes from, uh, he goes from Capernaum uh, up to, or goes from Nazareth up to Capernaum. Capernaum is kind of his home base uh, for a lot of his ministry. He does a lot of miracles there. And uh, it's near the Sea of Galilee, so it's a fishing town. But it also has quite a few, uh, a lot of evidence of good business. And part of the old city is still left there in ruins. 
Um, go ahead and skip to the next one. And you can see, if you weren't in Sunday school, some pictures of, of uh, Capernaum and, and some of the place that's still there. There's a big chunk of the city, uh, the old city ruins that are still exposed. So there, we know there was some industry and we know there was some importance there. Um, Peter and Andrew are from there. The brothers James and John are a little younger, still fishing with their uh, father. They're still there. There's a tax collector in town called Levi, or we know him probably better as Matthew, the tax collector. So a lot of Jesus' disciples come from this little town. And so in our story in Mark chapter 2, again, sorry about that, Dave. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus has been traveling a little bit and comes back to Capernaum. And it says that he is there and people hear that he is home. Now there's actually a home that's built there and we can see it. There's a, there's a chapel that is built over this old house in Capernaum. And there's a lot of people who have questioned uh, what this little house is. And uh, a lot of people think it's probably Peter's house. Uh, Since Peter lived there, Jesus went to Peter's house and his mother-in-law was sick and he healed her, which is always kind of a funny miracle because most of the miracles share like a response, like they were they were glad and filled with wonder. But but the healing of Peter, Peter's mother-in-law never says that. So you kind of wonder if Peter wasn't really happy about that miracle. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what his relationship was. Uh, It's kind of a small house to live with your mother-in-law, but there it is. Okay, some people say maybe he lived with Matthew, but I kind of wonder if the text actually makes more sense when it says he was home if he had a home. And uh, we, we think, well, Jesus doesn't have a home, right? Because Matthew 8 tells us uh, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But Jesus is 30. You think he doesn't have a home? He was a carpenter. That's actually a pretty good living. And remember, he had gold from the wise men which I always wonder what happened to that, right? Um, Jesus probably had a home, and I wonder if for business he had moved to Capernaum, and he had, so maybe they're at Jesus' house. I don't know if it's Peter's house, Jesus' house, um, but we do have this chapel. We know that the early Christians saw this house as having some importance. So people crowd into this little house, and uh, whoever's house it was, it's crowded. Probably a little house in those days could only hold maybe 50 people standing, okay? Some of you have living room, dining rooms that are bigger than these little houses that people have, okay? They're teeny, teeny, uh, and the houses are real close together. We're used to having yards, but in Israel, it's not like that. They're little teeny houses right next to little teeny houses of your neighbors, okay? Um, so this place is crowded as people are hearing Jesus, and uh, there are the, there's this lame man, can't walk, And there's four men carrying him. Now, there's an interesting point that needs to be made about this story. And that is that most people assume these men to be friends. Okay, Even Adam Hamilton in his book and in his study says, oh, look at these great friends of Jesus. The problem is the text does not say friends. And I will tell you from other places that these gospel writers know the word friend. In fact, um, one of the gospels telling this story, Jesus calls calls the lame man a friend. But they don't use the name friend. They just say men. So we assume them to be friends, um, but perhaps they're not. In fact, there were these people called the Essenes. We talked about them last week, that maybe John the Baptist was one. And the Essenes were a group of people that cared a lot about being separate from the world, cared a lot about cleanliness so that they did sort of baptizing or 
uh, uh, cleaning rituals, but they also all had to do at least one year taking care of the poor and the infirm. Okay? The Essenes were basically the Salvation Army or the AmeriCorps of the first century. Okay? That's what they were. And they, they did at least a year serving. They were always serving. And so wonder if in this passage these men are actually Essenes that are caring for people with, dif- with difficulty and disabilities in the community. Whoever it is, uh, they're not called friends in the text. But maybe they are. Maybe they know them well. Maybe they are friends. But that's an assumption. And I wonder if maybe the story reads a little different if these are people just caring about other people instead of being friends. So the, the real question is, why are these friends or these men carrying and taking care of this man? Where is this man's family? Okay, in the first century, it was assumed your family should take care of you if you had a difficulty like this. Okay, it was the family's job to care for you. It was the family's job to carry you. It was the family's job. And clearly, they may have been friends, but calling them men means they're, they're probably not family. Where is this man's family? He is at the mercy of these men. So the men labor to get the man to this house, but the house is totally jam-packed. In fact, the text says you can't even get to the door. People are hanging out outside trying to hear Jesus talk. So they decide they're going to go up on the roof, dig and remove the roof, and lower the man down. Now, to understand this story, you have to understand first century houses because none of us can dig our roofs, right? So that's even a weird phrase for us that all the Gospels say, both the Gospels that tell this story in this level of detail say, they dug. So this is more like a first century house, very, very small, very, very tight. Um, You might have kind of a loft so that some people could sleep up a little bit higher. Um, And actually in the first century, if you had animals, most of the time you didn't have a barn, so the animals would also come in on cold nights. And that's partly how you would heat your house on cool evenings. And they do get cool evenings in Israel. Um, but they're tight, um, maybe 18 feet wide, okay, maybe a little bit long. I mean, you, you live in tight quarters, okay? And uh, so the roof was an important place because the roof was the place you could go to escape your mother-in-law or to, in a lot of stories in the Bible, pray or whatever else. And, and it wouldn't just be your family. It'd be your family and your grandparents, And your kids, and if they got married until they could have a place, uh, they might have their kids there. Uh, If you were really great, you'd have a room maybe on the back that you would would call the guest quarters. Sometimes it's translated as inn. So probably when Mary and Joseph go to Israel or go to Jerusalem or go to Bethlehem to stay with, I got there, stay with their family, they probably stayed in the back room, the guest room. But the guest room was full So they had to stay in the rest of the house where everybody else was and where the feeding trough, the manger, was so that when you brought your animals in at night, they could have something to eat. Okay, But the roof is important. you got to be able to go up there in the the heat of the day. you got to be in the cool of night. That's going to be the coolest place. So you might go up there. So there's a number of stories in the Bible where people are praying on the roof because that was a common thing to do, especially your evening prayers. So what you would do is you would have sort of beams across and then you would have some straw or something to give it a little bit of texture. And then you would put mud and you would put dirt up there and have it dry, sort of pack it in. But you had to be able to go up there. And it means you had to tend to your roof. Okay? Your roof would fall apart sometimes. Okay? Your roof would get too dry or your roof could get too wet. Although more dry was the likelihood in Israel, right? 
but you had to be able to get up there. And uh, so there's always steps. There's always an access and, and, and the ability to get up there. Okay. So what these men do is they take the access, probably a set of stairs, and they go up and they dig, and they have to dig because of all that mud, right? They get the mud and dirt out of the way, and then they sort of pull apart the straw, and they get between a beam once they find where a beam is, and then they lower this man down in the house. And remember how, how, how crowded the house is. Must have been this really chaotic moment because there's no room in the house, okay? There's no room in the house. So you're lowering a man into just a mob of people, Right? And people are sort of spreading out, trying to make room for this person that's coming down. Now it's really interesting. They do all this, and the text says Jesus sees their faith. Their faith. Okay? And then he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he sees their faith. Okay, it's very clear, and in multiple Gospels, it's all the same. It's plural their faith. He sees the men's faith who do all this work to get the man to Jesus. And because of that, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. It's this amazing sort of claim in this text as to how important our faith and our work is in the lives of other people. That in some way, somehow, God respects our faith as we're trying to care for other people. Now, the scribes are in the room. And they don't like it. They don't like this. Because only God can forgive sins. How can you say you forgive sins? You're not God. Besides the fact that their understanding in those days was that if you were sick, okay, if you were lame, if you had something like this wrong with you, there's a reason. There was a curse from God for something. Maybe it was something you did. Maybe it was something your parents did. But but you knew that there was something wrong. And so this lame man had wondered his whole life, I bet. Wondered his whole life, what did I do to deserve this? What did my parents do to deserve this? Imagine not just being lame, but feeling guilty. That guilty. And having no family. Okay, Where is this man's family? He, he has some kind of broken relationship with his family. He has some kind of poor vision of himself. And of course, the scribes know this. How could you forgive this man? Obviously, God has punished this man some way, somehow, for something he did or something his parents did. And the scribes were in those days the lawyers. And I don't mean lawyers in our understanding. They were the religious lawyers. They were the experts on the law. This is the way God works. This is the way God set up the world. And you better not violate these rules and if you did, they were the ones in charge of making sure you got in trouble for it. Okay? And they can't stand that Jesus says that he would forgive this man. How could you forgive him when God cursed him? You understand? How could you as a man forgive him? But Jesus is aware in his spirit, the text says, of what they're saying. And maybe Jesus, it seems like he knows what people are thinking a, lot, a couple times in the text. But I'm not sure he has to in this case. I wonder if he can just read body language. Okay, I wonder if the scribes are there like, you know what I mean? They're looking at each other like, and Jesus, oh, I don't even have to read your mind to know what you're thinking. So Jesus says, well, which is easier? Saying your sins are forgiven or telling this man to get up and walk? And then Jesus says the purpose, the reason of the miracle, that you can see the authority. 
that you'll be able to witness the authority that I have. See, when Jesus does miracles in the Bible, it's always also about him. Okay, John, when he says miracles, he calls them signs. Signs. Like signs that point to Jesus and say, look about this about Jesus. Look at this about Jesus. They are shows of his power. His what the, the Greek word is dunamis. It's the same word from which we get the word dynamite. Okay, or dynamic. He has some sort of power that he is showing. And so he tells, tells the man, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And go home. And I love this. Number one, I love this idea of pick up your pallet. Okay? You, what kind of a symbol would the pallet be for him? Okay? Some of you have walkers. Some of you have canes. Okay? What does that symbolize for you? What for a lame man would it symbolize to have your pallet, to have your cot, your whatever you want to call it, that people used to have to drag you around on. And Jesus says, pick it up, take it home. What would you do with that at home? I would hang it prominently and say, that's not the person I am anymore, thank you, Jesus. He takes this symbol that would have been his symbol, not just of his lameness, but of all his guilt, of all his sin, that he was supposedly being punished for or the sin of his parents passed on him. Take that home. And then interesting that he says to go home. We wonder where the man's family is. Apparently, he has a home. And what Jesus says is, you're healed, stand up, get your mat, go home and fix the relationships that seem to be broken. See, Jesus is always doing more than fixing the person, fixing the ailment, fixing what's wrong. He's fixing the person as a whole. He's bringing them back to health, saying your sins are forgiven. And then he's also fixing relationships. Go home. These people that aren't taking care of you, that you have broken relationship with, fix those things too. The healing is always bigger than the infirmary. Infirmity with Jesus. The healing is always so much more. And then in the Gospels, whenever there's a miracle, most of the time, other than Peter and his mother-in-law, there's some kind of response, right? There's some kind of, and they're filled with awe. They're filled with wonder. Because the miracles do something to us. We're amazed and we glorify God. But the awe does not always stay the response in Capernaum. If you read later in Matthew 11, Jesus actually denounces and curses the city. Matthew 11:20. 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Let that sink in for a minute. Here's the town he probably did the most miracles in. And later he curses them because they don't have faith and they won't repent and they won't change their ways. We tell ourselves... We tell ourselves that if we only could see miracles, if we could only see the power of Jesus, then we would really have faith and believe. What the Bible says over and over again, from the Israelites to all these people in the gospel say, no, you won't. No, you won't. Show of power is not enough. Faith is something that has to be built long and over time. Now, I realize I have been pulling a lot of different threads in this sermon so let me try to weave them back. And Lucas, there is a slide for this. There we go. First of all, let's think about Capernaum, who had seen all, this, all these miracles, but Jesus curses for a lack of faith. See, it's, it, if you think someday you're going to see something so amazing from Jesus that your faith is going to be rock solid and you'll have no more doubts, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not coming. 
okay? Because the people that saw Jesus give them manna in the wilderness, okay, and the people that saw this man get up that had been lame, and they knew him, okay? Everybody in town knew who the lame guy was that they see carried around every day. And then they see him suddenly walk, and those people have trouble with faith? Guess what? Your doubts are probably going to continue, okay? Um, it's not about you seeing something great. It's just about you having childlike faith to trust. Now, Jesus, let's think about this from Jesus. Je- this, is, this story is for me, so Jesus, okay? Here he is. He's having fun. He's telling all these stories, okay? And he knows that these four guys want to bring him in, okay? He knows what's happening. He knows what's coming. We know that from a number of stories in the gospel. And so he lets this whole thing play out. Okay, he lets his roof get destroyed, or Peter's roof gets destroyed. I don't know how you want to, whatever way you want to read that. And then he says the man is forgiven, not just to heal the man because he probably needed to know he was forgiven, but I think he also kind of jabs at the scribes. You know what I mean? He pushes buttons. I can see him smiling in the corner of the mouth of his mouth as he forgives the man because he knows what's coming next. And yet. We see in Jesus, not just this fun, not just knowing what's coming, but, but in Jesus, a real concern again and again and again in the gospel for healing. And not just healing of an infirmity, but actually healing us as people and healing us in relationships. Healing our families and healing our communities. And Jesus is in the healing business. But let's think about the scribes. Okay? Here's a man who gets to walk, and what they're mad about is the forgiveness of sins. Okay? And when Jesus does other miracles, what are they mad about? You can't do that on Sunday. You can't, you can't heal somebody on Sunday. Well, listen, if you're the guy that can heal, you can do whatever day you want, right? The scribes are so caught up in the rules, in the laws, that they have expectations of Jesus, and they have a lot of trouble when Jesus doesn't follow their expectation. And I have news for you. If that's you, be prepared to be really mad at Jesus a lot, okay? Because Jesus doesn't follow your expectations. Jesus does whatever Jesus wants to do, okay? The healer can heal whenever he wants and however he wants. And uh, if you're going to be really legalistic about that and expect God to work a certain way, be prepared to be disappointed and mad. We especially become scribes, by the way, when we want God to bring healing and we pray to God and God says no. Right? For my sister, there was this miraculous healing of her spine. But my sister also suffers from hearing loss. And my sister has had some other physical difficulties with childbirth and other things that God did not heal her from the same way. But he's God. And I don't know what to tell you except he doesn't do what you want him to. Okay? Faith is having trust in God that God has the good even when you don't know uh, what it is. You trust that he does. And I have tried to stop in my life, and it's not always been easy, but tried to stop telling God what he should do. And instead just open my hands and say, all right, here we go. Um, Now, from the paralytic's perspective, a man who has lived a life of regret and shame, alone and separate from his family, living at the mercy of others, unable to move himself without help. And here Jesus brings it all to him and puts, it back, puts him back together. And so it makes me wonder, if you're out there right now 
and you have some things that you need healed. And for some of you, it may be a physical ailment, right? Lord, my back really needs some help here. And for some of you, it may be personal that you're carrying around a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for things that have happened in the past. And for some of you, maybe it's, uh, it's relational. And you know, you got members in your family and you got fam- uh, friends that you have lost relationships with that you really are praying to God to bring them back. The good thing is you don't do those things alone. Because we've also got to remember these men and the hole they rip in the ceiling for this man. Friend or not friend, they go to great lengths to show their faith, to bring this man to Jesus. A God who heals because of their faith. What if we took very seriously that the people around us that need healing are going to get that healing because of our faith? Because we do the work to bring them to Jesus. And because all the things that get in their way of coming to Jesus, we try to get those out of the way. We knock down the roofs and we get through the crowds and we really bring our neighbors and our friends to Jesus in whatever way we can. And how often do we have obstacles? Well, what we really want the person to do is go to church so the pastor can talk to them. What we really want to do is lift them up in prayers in church instead of actually praying for them uh, ourselves. Maybe we need to be more like these men. We need to be cot carriers. We need to be roof terrors. Bringing people to Jesus in a way that makes Jesus and makes others take notice. We need to be roof raisers. Because the way of Jesus is a way of healing. Holistic, multifaceted healing that starts with forgiveness and ends with building community and building relationships and building family. And so we are called to pray and we are called to carry others and we are called to tear the roof off. We're called to take down obstacles for people so that they may find forgiveness and healing in Christ that we too need. May we follow that, our true calling. Amen.